Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the XXLA Architects podcast, which was recorded at the 2019 LA Design Festival. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest is Elena Manfredini, the recipient of the 2019 Icon Award at this year's festival. Elena is the graduate chair at SciArc and a principal at Atelier Manfredini. Elena's striking exuberance, charisma, and rigor is completely evident in her work, which ranges in scale from product design to graphic facades and entire buildings. I really enjoyed speaking with Elena and admire her even more after having such a wonderfully candid and yet intellectual and profound conversation. I hope you enjoy the episode. We were just talking about um, the space between the creative and the audience and that you can't have art without the audience. Um, some things I see in your work, to me it's so interesting. There's a lot of tension between different ideas that come together like flatness and depth or spatialness to it or um, you know, hypersaturation and really organic nature scenes. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the ideas that are currently really important to you in your designs. I think I always enjoy a contact with the audience. I don't know if I always knew that the audience was part of the artwork, and I'm not always sure that I know who the audience is, but I know that the audience has to do some work for the artwork, meaning that most of the work I do has a bidimensional quality, pictorial quality, and is a place where um, there is no fixed perspective, uh, there is no fixed position for the viewer to be, and the viewer has to choose what to see and how to see it. There is always a certain level of ambiguity in the work. Even in the most literal representation of nature that I've done, there is always something off and intriguing and synthetic and threatening and familiar in the work that engages the audience. I think that kind of intellectual work, also sensorial work, that the audience does is part of the faceted quality of the artwork and how long and how sustained the interest in the artwork is. Because people forget that architecture is there for a long time. And sometimes people go to events and the event has a very short amount of um, time and therefore the element of surprise or engagement can be short. But usually architecture has a longer engagement with users. And therefore the moment where the optical effects end or basically the art is completely absorbed and completely understood by the audience, then it loses its power of imagination or interest of the audience themselves. So I think the duration of the effect is a quite important aspect of embedding art into architecture because they have to somehow extend the level of interest of whoever gets in contact with it. You asked me what we are working on right now in the office. We're working a lot with augmented reality, which is speaking to what you are saying about the work. So there is a manifestation of the work which is analog and remains. And then there is one that is very ephemeral that one can get only through an app, so our phones or tablets. And I think that manifestation is important as well because it adds an ephemeral layer to the artwork and therefore a level of engagement with the audience that I think, first of all, can be changed through time um, and really makes the art being part of the eyes beholder. So that is, I think, is a, is a quite interesting evolution that technology today um, is giving us the possibility to overlay analog and digital 
in the same space, it's also interesting that we're all going around with our phones, so we've never been as connected as today. I think we can uh, look at these devices as the cause of all society's bad things, but also we can look at these devices where we are actually connected. Is there a way in which we can leverage this probably a dependence to to our uh, cell phones, can we leverage that to start thinking differently or to start seeing differently the things around us? So we're doing a few augmented reality projects um, that try to leverage this technology and try to leverage this new way of seeing things through the lenses of our devices. Are those integrated into buildings or how are they... We are trying to do that. Uh, within buildings, it's more artwork on buildings, meaning that we have painted glass on buildings and then the app recognizes the graphics and there is an activity that then starts occurring. So yes, we're trying to, to do that, yes. That's really cool. I saw some Vimeo um, videos of it and it, it feels like uncovering a secret or something when you... Yes, I think that's the intriguing part of the, of, of the experience, and it becomes a private experience in a public space, which I think is what art does the best, because we all have an experience with art, but the experience is a personal one. And weirdly, through those devices, which are quite personal, I mean, nobody wants to really give their phone to anybody else. Now we all have the same exact phone, but it's what the data inside is the most personal thing that you could have. So that relationship, which is a personal one with an object, even amplifies this idea of personal experience in a public space. I wonder um, if you're coming from Italy where there's so much art and architecture that are just combined, like it's um, there's so much more tradition there of these amazing buildings where you look up and you see incredible frescoes um, or details within the buildings. Does that influence how you approach architecture, do you think? I think it did for all my life. I think architects and painters, which now are two different and distinct professions, we forget that at some point, actually, they were quite close to each other, that painters were architects and painters were sculpture and sculpture were architects. It was the same education that came together. And I think it's not something that I bring to the table that is new. I think it's something that has existed for centuries, yes. But it feels fresh here. I think we forgot that that relationship could happen. I think modernism has done uh, a lot of great things, but also has for sure um, banned any possibility to embed um, color in buildings for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's something that happened not only in the United States, actually in Europe as well. And I think we also forgot the medium of paint. Um, but I think the work can embrace other mediums and still act as paint. So um, it could be an app, could be a facade, could be a printed glass. You could imagine the canvas being much more complex today, had much more potential than it had once upon a time. Sometimes I think, of what would Tintoretto have done with all this incredible uh, technical advancement that it could have used? Yeah. No, I think it's really interesting because the way that you're using the technology as a tool is really skillful and it's a tool that you're using to push your ideas. So I wonder, you know, at the beginning of creating a scripted drawing, you're the one deciding what inputs are going in, like what your subject matter might be or what color palette to begin with. How do you get that um, inspiration? There is a lot of trial error in the process of making art and using technology towards the creation of an interesting composition. And there is also probably a sense of order that 
across through the entire work, either through panelizations or color coding or um, scripting images. It is clear that there is a research for order and that that order will bring a sense of beauty to this to the work um, also the sense of order is more and more complex meaning that um, if once upon a time maybe the rules of composition were simpler I think now the contemporary eye is trained to a level of complexity and reading much more data and therefore the rules of aesthetics are actually much more complex today than they were once upon a time so I think the technical component of the work is also quite aesthetic. Um, so the rules of the creation uh, also are the most important ingredient for the recognition of the aesthetic pleasure of the piece. And so when I look at the work, I feel that there's a real sense for me of an unapologetically feminine quality to it. And, you know, this is just me perceiving it. I wonder, have you ever thought about your work that way when you're creating it? I think the work artists do is a reflection of their soul. It's very hard to um, escape one's um, true nature. (laughs) 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 I, you know, I sometimes I like my, I look at my work and I don't like the work. It's so revealing of, of who I am as a person and my personality and my, um, visual field. And so it's, I think it is feminine because it's, it's a clear expression of the exuberance nature (laughs) of my, of my essence. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I definitely see that from, you know, not just the graphic work, but um, some of the product design or especially the, the fashion. And If you leave me uh, long enough with a drawing, it will become colorful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it will. <laughs> Sometimes people in my office do phenomenal work and I, and I like it and it's quite masculine. And then if, if it goes enough on my desktop and my computer, it will appear in different formats. So I understand what you mean. Sometimes I even, I even try not to touch too much the work of other collaborators because I realize that it's, mm, that it's important also to have different balances in the work. So I, sometimes I even try to stay away from it. Wow. Yeah. And that's not to say that you have a distinct, like a, a style or a formula, but just that, you know, it's incredible to look at somebody's work and feel like you see them in it. Um, I think, especially running a business, that is one of the hardest things I would think to do as an architect is to find those opportunities where you have this client, you have this project, and they're saying yes to who you are and what your ideas are. I've been lucky enough to collaborate with clients that have given me this latitude. And to be honest with you, I don't think they would even come to me to begin with if they did not want, at some level, my creativity. Almost always, I have to say. Maybe I don't get many clients, but the one that I get, for sure, they come because they understand the artistic value of the work for many reasons. I mean, some people come to me because they think that the design will give them higher profits. You know, so so they, they imagine that adding this artwork to their project would make it more valuable to them. Or other people come to me because of the 
level of contemporary quality of the work and they want to be now or other people come to me because um, they want something that matters and therefore art gives them the sense of meaning. So I think there are many reasons for which a client could be attracted to the work but I think all understand that it's part of what I can offer. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Because I think the hardest part about doing that are are the firsts. Like um it, it's sort of like proving yourself or putting it out there and then once people see it, they'll come rushing to it. <laughs> I think it's a misconceived idea. Yeah? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, how do you see it? <laughs> I think you fight for every project you've got. Yeah? Yes, beginning to end. You always have to establish confidence in the clients. Um, you have to establish confidence in your employees. You have to establish confidence in the world. So I think the more your office grows, probably the bigger the projects are, and therefore you always have to prove yourself that you can do it. <laughs> no project is the same. <laughs> so I think I, you're a novice at every single step. Oh, that's comforting to know. Yeah, <laughs> So it doesn't get any easier. Whatever yeah. you're going through is going to be the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, what impresses me so much about you is that you're so accomplished and and you're so humble and uh, willing to share. And So you, when you become a parent of a child, <laughs> you realize that you just fake it for a while. You know, you're going to have to fake to be an adult. <laughs> it's true. So it's not like you really changed in the core. You're still having all the limitations of childhood in you but but you have to act adult so that's more or less what happens you learn how to provide that performance <laughs> how old is your kid my child yeah. is uh, almost two years old oh okay yes. oh how cool <laughs> uh congratulations thank you <laughs> so um you're doing all of these things, your program chair of uh, the graduate program at SciArc, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. incredible. And so it sounds like all of these experiences are kind of feeding into each other and helping each other. Sure. I think teaching and being part of a strong, um, self-confident community like SciArc has been, first of all, a privilege. I mean, the idea that a school would give you the ability to educate other people that, first of all, is, is, is the best job on earth. The idea that you contribute to somebody's development and they contribute to your own development because I think it's truly is an exchange, the one you have with students. And having colleagues that are like-minded um, and their criticality and their, their way of looking at your projects makes it stronger and makes it grow more. I think this is, uh, has been... Um, fundamental for the development of my practice. Um, I think also it gave me the courage to pursue certain things that I thought probably I wouldn't have the strength to pursue, but I think having the example of um, mentors, let's say, for lack of a better word, yeah. of people that have been doing certain work before you or having the support of students that enjoy what you are sharing with them, I think these all are important qualities that shape you as an individual and give you the strength and the determination to continue in the work, which I think is the first step to have work. So I think the academic side is maybe the most important ingredients of the professional sides of, of my practice. There wouldn't be one without the other. Talking with Sona earlier, it was really wonderful because she was just singing your praises about how coming into your studio, she felt like you were totally open to everyone's own ideas that they were bringing in and helping them shape those rather than trying to force an idea on them. I find almost 
problematic when I see um, people mimicking my work or not pursuing their own. I I truly enjoy the exchange, um, and there are affinities. I mean, I I think the people that are attracted to my studio or, or that I bring into my office are people that see things in a similar way that I see them. I provide expertise to their project, and the expertise that I can give them are limited to what I know. And we find a match, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. naturally. But I think it would be problematic if a school would produce the style of a single person. I truly think in the school we're at, there are incredible faculty and they all have their own individuality and a richness to offer. And I think we also influence each other. I have to say that I wouldn't be the designer I am If I was not inspired and somehow influenced, I mean, we're all influenced by each other. So those are formative for me too. So I think having only one vision, it's never that enriching (laughs) or it cannot last that long. Right. I heard that at Powerful, there was a a moment where you, you had shared that you decided to apply for the graduate program chair position because of sitting in that audience. Can you talk about that a little bit? It was a, um, a transformative experience, the one of being the chair. And I think it was a transformative experience, the one of applying. I thought the act of applying for a job I wanted was, first of all, declaring my strength and accepting that failure could come out of it but also a good outcome could come out of it. So it was a little bit of a decision, but at the end of the day, I knew I wanted it and I needed to follow that. I I think the strength of saying you want certain things um, is usually rewarded. If you don't say what you desire or what you would like to contribute in, then for sure you don't, you're not going to get them. So that's something I learned actually late, to be honest with you. I didn't do it very often in my life. I did it very few times where I step up and I said, this is what I would like to do and how I would like to contribute to this community. This didn't happen many times for me, but I think all the time it happened <laughs> actually was given to me what I asked. So I think maybe we need to ask for the things that we think we can do. Right. In society. Right. They might just give them to us to do. (laughs) Be be careful what you wish for. (laughs) I definitely enjoy the service to the school. I think it gave me the opportunity to matter uh, in the education of many individuals. And I think it's a great gift that I received from this opportunity. That's awesome. Yeah. So I know you were talking about in this last panel, future work and a lot of ambitions for things you haven't done yet that you want to do. Can you talk more about that? Yes, I think we are now starting um, in the office to approach larger scope of work. Um, We just finished one of the first ground up of the office and there are a few more in the pipeline. And I think those are important because first of all, there are moments where you beat your fear of construction and you prove to yourself that you can build those things, you approach the next one with another self-confidence. And I think now that the self-confidence of the office is there and the know-how and the backbone is there, then the hope is doing better and higher work that aligns more with what we want to produce in the office. So I think it's a natural progression. (laughs) What do you think that ideal project is? Like, is it a public space? For sure. The office has been working mainly in public projects. Um, it's been always the role that clients decided for us to have. And I think it's maybe the most important contribution we can give to society is to 
offer this imaginative spaces for people to enjoy. So my hope is, yes, that we're going to get larger public projects. Nice. <laughs> Uh, any advice for um, for young architects? Oh, they always ask me I know. this. Oh, this is a, a dramatic <laughs> question. <laughs> you know, it's a hard question because it's it's so general. And also, I hated when people gave me advice when I was young. I think they actually derailed my life, and and, 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 and <laughs> or at least they they delayed the inevitable direction of my life. So you oh, gotta yeah? you gotta be careful about what you say to young people because they might listen to you. But okay, so what what advice were you given that derailed your your trajectory? To, um, to make art my hobby and not my profession. Mm. That's a yeah. That's a terrible advice to give to somebody, mm. and I realized that came from a good art and probably a very pragmatic person that wanted to tell me that I should not pursue what I thought I needed to do. Nobody knows what's happening tomorrow. I don't have yeah. a crystal ball, yeah. and I cannot tell you the future. And I think uh, nobody can. So. I think the idea that somebody would give advice about somebody else's <laughs> life is, first of all, a, a responsibility that I don't think I should take, but also is a responsibility of somebody that doesn't understand that <laughs> life is quite serendipitous. And if you want to, to give a good advice, okay, get a job, and, 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 and then you understand what profession is good today, but is that going to be good in 20 years from now? Do you truly want to say to somebody, this is good for you right. and this will give you that job or that stability or that career. I don't think I want that responsibility and I don't think anybody should take that. Right. Um, and what matters to someone is very individual. Stability might be great for one person, but um, absolutely, another person may look at success a different way. Absolutely. So I learned not to... Um, not to listen, first of all, when people <laughs> tell me what, what, what their advice would be. Um, and not to fall into the temptation of telling people how I see the world. Because the truth is that even when people ask me, what's your five-year plan? I don't think I've ever had one. And I think that's fine. Yeah. I have my dreams and I... And slowly it will, you know, some of them or a part of that or a version of that will happen. But truly, they don't ever manifest in the way... I imagine them to begin with. So I'm not sure I have an advice for the younger generation. I can only tell you that what I like about when I teach is to find that golden piece in the work and truly make that grow. It's something that gives me a lot of pride and satisfaction. It doesn't come from me, honestly. It comes from the students. But the ability to look at a body of work and being able to find the seeds of a positive, meaningful, creative trajectory, that is quite important to me. And I don't know if that makes me a good teacher, but it definitely um, makes for an adventure with the work. That sounds like it makes you an excellent teacher. <laughs> so with the, the bad advice, does it... Did you go into engineering instead of art? Sure. And that's what, what wow. <laughs> Um, I think the expectation that engineering would be a better, stable practice was slowly ingrained to me. Yes. But you see, it comes to you anyway. I mean, in a way, I also left Italy and I came to the United States and a lot of freedom came from it, um, which, you know, at the end evolved maybe in a much more creative career than I could have ever done if I was going to the Beaux-Arts in Italy and then not ending up doing the kind of work I do now. So at the end, everything went fine. 
It'd be fascinating if you did a project in Italy. Yes, I try, but they, um, they're not easy to come, you know, in yeah. the projects. <laughs> <laughs> the density of the built territory is, is very high there. Right. But may, I, yeah, I know. They're, and then they're so precious with their buildings, which, I mean, they should be, but at the same time, it'd be interesting to see what you might do with it. Well, let's hope that somebody listens to that and, <laughs> and calls me up. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much. I know you have a party to get to. Yes, that's good. Where they're honoring yeah. you. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank, you. thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the XXLA Architects Podcast. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Elena Manfredini. To find out more, please visit xx-la.com or follow me on social media, especially Instagram, at XXLA Podcast. And hey, if you or anyone you know wants to sponsor the podcast, please reach out. And stay tuned because our next episode will be a great conversation with Emmanuel Boulier, the co-founder and CEO of Panelite. If you attended this year's AWA Plus D Symposium, you'll recall that she was on the panel I moderated, so we were able to go into further depth into some of the things we talked about at the event. So stay tuned and thanks for listening.